Hey, listeners, if you're listening to this on the day that it drops, Friday the 24th, just wanted to let you know that it is one of my favorite people's birthdays, and that is Annie. Annie has been such a terrific co-host of this show. You know, I've been so, so happy to produce Sminty with her. She's amazing. It's great for me because, you know, y'all just get a taste of how amazing she is every Wednesday and Friday. I get to have her all the time. So happy birthday, Annie. We are so, so grateful to have you on the show and just in the world. And we hope it's a great one. So listeners, uh, Annie doesn't know I'm doing this. So be sure to show her some love on social media. Show her that birthday love. And Annie, we love you so much. Hi, this is Annie. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. And one thing that has happened since I became an outspoken feminist um, and have started working on this show in particular is that any time a story breaks about sexism or that it's tangentially related to sexism, people text me about it. Uh, people are always like, have you heard about this? Are you going to talk about this on the show? And I, I bet the same is true for a lot of you listeners. Is the same true for you, Bridget? Oh, so true. So true. I don't um, even need like a Google alert. Like, <laughs> I, you guys will let us know. Yes. And today's topic is no exception. Um, we're talking about Tokyo Medical Institute. On August 8th, an investigation revealed that the test scores at Tokyo Medical University had been regularly doctored, which is a pun that I made on accident, to keep women out. Tokyo Medical University is a really well-known and respected university in Japan, um, and it was chosen to receive special funds from the government to increase female attendance. So this is a big deal, and it has been going on for over a decade. Some women claim to have heard rumors that the university was engaging in this practice, and from the university's internal report, quote, this can only be described as serious discrimination against women, and it deserves strong criticism. Okay, so when I first heard about this, I was thinking, maybe it's this sort of implicit thing where they're, every third woman, they're giving a hard time. No. This is a systematic and very specific method of keeping women out in a way that's almost cartoonishly evil. When I was reading through what they actually did and how specific the numbers were behind how they were keeping women out, this is like a plot from a Bond movie. It was, it was so intense. Yeah. And not only did the university lower the scores for female applicants, it also helped certain individuals, usually the family members of donors, usually men, also called priority males, by raising their scores. So here's how they did it. Um, on the essay portion of the exam, which was marked out of 100, 20% was taken off automatically. Men who had taken the test three times or less, so most men, got 20 bonus marks. So for a man and a woman who got the same test score, say 80, but the man had taken the test three times or less, he would get a score of an 84 and the woman would get a score of a 64. Oh, it's, it's so cartoonishly evil. So the goal was a so-called, quote, silent understanding to decrease female enrollment from 40% in 2010 to 30% in 2020. Yeah, they were trying to get it down to 30%. Which, again, is so horrible and that they were receiving money to, in order to increase the female population at this school, right? Yeah. 
The investigation into possible score-altering launched after a scandal came to light around a higher-up in the education ministry that um, he had bribed the former chairman of the school's board of regents and the former president of the university to grant the official son entry into the university after he did poorly on the test. Hashtag poorly performing males. Poor performing males. (laughs) (laughs) It'll catch on one day. No, I, I badly, we should put that on a shirt. Hashtag, or like, I guess a woman wouldn't want to wear it. I don't know. We'll figure it out. We'll sort it out. But it's my favorite thing, and we got to make it happen. (laughs) I think we will. 35 million yen in government subsidies for the school in exchange for his son's acceptance. That's what the officials, the investigation found. So it's well that it's not just blatant sexism keeping women out. It's giving priority males, you know, men who have these connections, men who are the sons of donors, giving them a leg up. It's like this, it's like working in tangent with each other. Yeah. Like sexism and nepotism had a baby and it's this. (laughs) That is exactly how I would describe it. Another possible red flag is that for nearly every subject other than medicine, women have a higher pass rate on the entrance exam. But um, for for this particular entrance exam medicine, it was 6.85% to 5.91% men to women. So when the news of this broke, the managing director and vice president of the university apologized and promised that it would never happen again and said they were looking into ways to making it up to the women who had been denied access to the university. Um, I can't imagine what that would look like unless it's just we are now an all-female university <laughs> You know, I can't, I can't imagine, like, how do you how do you make that up to someone? They said, um, and by the way, they don't know how many women this impacted, but they suspect it's thousands at least. Um, they were talking about maybe reimbursing, because you have to pay to take the test. <laughs> you have to pay to take the test, so reimbursing the test fees. Um, but how does that make it, I mean, sure, that, that's the least they can yeah. do is make them financially whole, but it's almost one of those things where... Let's say that I was a, a prominent, you know, soon to, like prominent medical student and I wanted to go to this medical school and I could have gotten in and my life could have been so different and, you know, I could have had untold success. Like ha- you can't reimburse somebody for what you've taken from them when what you've taken is, is potential. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, certainly not a test fee is going to make up for, for just a lost opportunity. So the vice president said... I suspect that there was a lack of sensitivity to the rules of modern society in which women should not be treated differently because of their gender. Yeah, you think? You think? <laughs> I, yeah, he might be on to something there. <laughs> yeah, sounds like. You don't say. <laughs> the reason given for this practice of trying to keep women out was the belief that women would be more likely to quit after getting married or getting pregnant, having children which is pregnancy discrimination, just like we were talking about in our episode on the New Zealand Prime Minister. University officials told local reporters that it created an intolerable burden on already overworked doctors and that the university was well within their legal rights to choose who to accept. B.S. Come on. I mean... I mean, this is this is tale as old as time. You know, in America, women certainly deal with pregnancy discrimination. But this idea that the university, they're well within their rights to systematically scam women out of a, a place in a medical school that they've earned through hard work because they are worried that they're going to have children and take time off. Like that's that's n- no, that's wrong. <laughs> yes, flat out wrong. And there are a lot of 
things to unpack around um, Japan's aging population, putting more and more pressure on hospitals that creates an environment of understaffed hospitals and long work hours. But there are certainly better solutions than essentially cheating to keep women out of the profession. I mean, that's just blaming women for societal problems. Of course, understaffed and overworked hospital staff is a problem, but these are larger societal problems. It's not individual women's fault for daring to be women, <laughs> you know, and trying to become doctors. Like It's like putting the blame on these women who ha- have the audacity to want to go to medical school as opposed to social services, your government, and all of that. Yeah, and we're going to talk more about that later because there is so much other things keeping women out of the medical profession, but um, some media reports do indicate in Japan, 70% of women leave their job after kids, but it's because they don't have access to good childcare. The hours are really long, and they're also expected to do the housework and take care of the elders in the family, which is like three other jobs. Um, And a story broke pretty recently about how a woman was reprimanded for having a baby before it was her, quote, turn, and that she was supposed to stick to a timetable for when she could have kids. She worked at a child care center, and these centers are under enormous stress. 55,000 children are on the wait list for certified child care centers. Women in other careers have reported getting similar childbirth schedules. So, of course, as you might imagine... Women were not having it. They were furious. They took to social media with the hashtag, it's okay to be angry about sexism, to share their stories of betrayal and sexism they faced. Um, Women wrote about how they were asked to quit their jobs after getting pregnant, as if it was just understood, and how they were seeing women after women after women quit their job after getting pregnant and having no examples of the fact that they could have a career and a family. Yeah. One woman wrote... I ignored my parents who said women don't belong in academia and got into the best university in Japan. But in job interviews, I'm told, if you were a man, we'd hire you right away. My enemy wasn't my parents, but all society itself. Students protested at the university carrying signs that said things like, you trampled on the efforts and lives of women who trusted and chose you. Um, And like I said, you had to pay to take the exam. And several women who had their scores altered are seeking (laughs) compensation. I certainly wouldn't have applied if I'd known the unfair odds that I faced. And that's part of the problem, too, because think of the young girls in Japan hearing this story and thinking it doesn't matter how much I study, the medical field is not a place for women, that they don't want me. Yeah, and that's why I was so almost sort of baffled by this idea that they could, quote, make this this right or you know, pay, pay these women to, you know, make them feel whole. You can't, there's no amount of money that is going to correct that damage of being a woman or a girl who worked hard to become a doctor. And that idea that it doesn't matter how hard you work, they don't want me in this field, right? Like that has probably done immeasurable damage for gender parity in the medical field in Japan. And like, there's no amount of money that can fix that. Yeah, and it's also damaged people's trust in other universities. And people have started to raise questions about um, similar institutions with low female attendance. And, And it has also brought the issue of gender inequality and sexism in Japan back into the spotlight. Japan ranks 114th 
out of 144 when it comes to gender inequality, according to the World Economic Forum. The gap is particularly evident in specialized fields requiring high levels of expertise, despite the fact that women in Japan at a global level score some of the highest literacy and numerical scores. And this is something Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has been trying to combat with his womanomics program, which at its most basic is aimed at increasing the number of women in the workplace. A place where all women will shine is the kind of tagline for this womanomics program. And while we're focusing on women in medicine today, by no means is this problem unique to that field. Exactly. But for the medical profession in Japan specifically, since 2003, the number of women in the industry has stayed around one-third. This number also raises suspicions that other medical schools have probably been sort of manipulating the numbers to keep women out as well. The OECD found that 21% of Japanese physicians are female, and that's less than half of the average of 45%. The uncovery of the Tokyo Medical University's wrongdoings has sparked major outrage and an investigation into all medical universities in Japan. But maybe the rest of the world should be looking at this and doing some reflection as well. We'll get more into what we mean after this quick break. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yeah, so unfortunately, this problem is not localized to Japan, which I'm sure is a surprise to everyone listening. We talked a little bit about this in our Women in Pain episode, but discrimination against women in the medical fields is pretty common throughout the world. It's widespread. I mean, I don't want to give the message that we're just singling out Japan because in our country, the United States, this is certainly a problem as well. Yeah. Over the past two decades, female entrance to the medical field has equaled that to their male counterparts, but the burnout rate for women in the U.S. is double. This is often reframed as individual failures, and that's a quote, that could have been avoided by being a better negotiator, by not having kids. And yes, women report having received this advice in private. And this ignores the sexism and discrimination women face at every level that a lot of you listeners have written into as about that is causing them to drop out. Absolutely. So I I don't want to make people think that, you know, you shouldn't want to be a good negotiator or, you know, be your best employee or whatever. But we also can't discount the fact that society is messed up, that there's sort of no, you can't negotiate your way out of institutional sexism. And so we can't pretend that these are the individual failings of women and that's why you have this burnout rate and that's why you have this lack of gender parity in the medical field. You need to look at the entire situation and a lot of that is societal and widespread. Yeah, like sexual harassment. Um, Women in the medical field experience seven times the amount of harassment as men. And with 41% of women reporting receiving a negative remark from a patient about their gender, as opposed to 6% of men, getting paid less for the same work, everything accounted for about $20,000 less a year. And um, women aren't equally represented in academia either. In medical schools across the country, women make up 15% of department chairs and 16% of deans. Think about that for a second. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. That's wild. Since 2008, women only are awarded about 30% of tenured positions, and studies have found that gender bias comes into play when it comes to 
residency evaluations, which sets women back an average of four months. And these are extremely important for students in the medical field, potentially impacting fellowship placement and research awards. Other studies found that female physicians were less likely to get help from nurses than male physicians and were also viewed more negatively for making the same mistakes as their male counterparts. Compared to the rest of the population, female doctors are anywhere from two to four times more likely to commit suicide. That's so sad. Uh, My mom is a doctor, and none of this surprises me. She's completely, like, overworked. She tells me things that her that patients will say to her, you know, I don't want a black woman doctor. Like p- people feel really comfortable making sexist and sometimes racist comments about women and people of color in the medical field. And another part of the conversation is nurses. Nurses report a rate of sexual harassment of 70%. So if you're a woman or someone marginalized in the medical community, it's like you just can't catch a break. Yeah, and certainly that would contribute to that, the high dropout rate that we were talking about. And going back to pregnancy discrimination, one in three female physicians reported experiencing this and being unable to follow the recommendations they give to new mothers. Um, I hadn't really thought about that before, but to tell a new mother, this is what you need to do to take care of yourself and knowing that you can't follow your own advice. Since we don't have much in the way of maternity leave here in the United States, having children and then practically zero support from the institutions that have been designed without you in mind, um, maybe even to keep you out, that that plays into the high burnout rate as well. And the situation is similar in both the UK and Australia, where more women graduate from medical schools, but that does not reflect outside of university where they support a similar wage gap to the United States. And a study out of Canada from 1993 found that 76% of female doctors experienced sexual harassment from patients. A similar study out of Ireland from 2017 found that number to be 60%. And it's bad when I'm like, oh, only 60. Um, And 28% of respondents reported gender-based bullying. And that's so bad because, as we were just talking about, so many hospitals and medical facilities are already dealing with overwork, burnout, understaffed. Like, they already have legitimate issues that they're facing in their workplaces. That added, you know, bullying and gender-based harassment and sexual harassment on top of that. I mean, I can't even imagine. Of course they're burnt out. Of Of course they're leaving the industry. Of course. Yeah. And the New Zealand Herald reported this year that one out of 10 junior doctors experienced or witnessed sexual harassment, but that there was a culture of sexual intimidation and that many women were too afraid to speak out against male colleagues. From that report, quote, female staff thought putting up with a certain amount of sexual harassment was part and parcel of being a female doctor. God, doesn't that sound like so many other industries? You would think that, you know, people who are doctors are sort of sort of enjoy an elevated position in society as they should. But it's so interesting to me that even in this respected industry, it's the same as when you are working in the service industry or when you are working in lots of other kinds of industries where you just internalize that, yeah, putting up with sexual harassment is just part of being a doctor when you're a woman. Yeah, it's so infuriating that, that we just kind of accept it. We keep hearing similar things over and over again, but clearly this is a problem in in a lot of countries. 
outcome. And I hope that we can start moving towards a solution. Um, and we do have some, some potential solutions, but first we're going to stop for one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. All right. So keeping women and minorities who face similar obstacles from becoming physicians impacts patient care and the quality of care a country can provide. And as we say so often on this show, ultimately, it's about respecting and valuing women. But to drill in on some specifics, don't cheat to allow more men into your university. Step one. I would think that would not need to be spelled out in such explicit terms for university officials who probably have parts of their curriculum that spell out that their students shouldn't be cheating. They need to be told not to cheat as well, but here we are. <laughs> you know, don't cheat. It's bad. Yeah. <laughs> Providing uh, support structures at all levels, like more flexible work schedules, maternity care, merit-based programs, those are things that could help prevent that burnout. Yeah, and then lastly, have clear structure and pathways for reporting sexual violence, sexual harassment. Now, of course, this is complicated and it comes with its own set of complications around it, of course, but it's a good step. You know, not having any clear pathway for what to do if someone sexually harasses you on the job is not good. Yeah, I read a lot of stories from women in the medical field who said they didn't know who to talk to. So... At least having that and being able to make the decision to go report sexual harassment, that's a step in the right direction. And our yeah, our heart goes out to all the women in Japan kept out of Tokyo Medical University. Oh my God, I want them to rise up and like burn that place to the ground. <laughs> I'm so angry on their behalf. And yeah, my, my heart, beyond that, my heart goes out to, if you're an overworked, stressed out doctor or nurse, driving to your 5 a.m. shift and you haven't slept and you, you know, I, my heart goes out to all of y'all. I mean, I see how hard my mom works and she works really hard and it's actually kind of thankless. People think that being a doctor means that you're rich and, you know, all you do is walk around with a stethoscope around your neck and get handshakes all day. And it's really hard. Like I see how hard she works and it's, I know it can be kind of thankless and I, yeah, my heart goes out to y'all. I don't know how y'all do it. Yeah, I have a lot of people in the medical profession in my family and seeing their work hours and just hearing about all of the the stress and the things they have to deal with that are above and beyond like the job that they train for, but like dealing with difficult patients. Um, I'm always kind of taken aback by it. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot to ask of one person. It is a lot. Yeah. We would love to hear from any listeners in the medical field about about this stuff. Um, and this does bring us to listener mail. Before we read the mail today, I did want to say thanks to everyone who's written in about the Changing Your Name episode. It's so many emails. I had no idea that this was such a... I mean, I guess I did know, but... I had no idea. We, we heard from people who were getting divorced, people who were depressed after changing their name, people who were super happy to change their name because their partner had an awesome last name. Like this, so, There's so many stories. We should do a, a follow-up or a 
another episode on it because it just raised such an interesting conversation. Yeah, I was thinking we could probably do an entire episode where we just read emails people have sent in, messages people have sent in of their story because I found it was all so personal and different people, the reasons people had for changing their name or not changing their name or whatever ended up happening. And yes, I apologize to all women in Canada. It is not all women in Canada (laughs) that cannot change their name legally. It's only in Quebec. So I'll probably be hearing about that (laughs) until the end of time, but that's all right. That's okay. Uh, You know, we all make mistakes, Annie. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and everyone's been very kind in correcting me, which I appreciate. I hope I didn't cause any panic of people like, oh my God. Oh my God, I broke the law. (laughs) Somebody out there is... is has pay, if you if you need us to pay your legal fees because you heard that you've broken the law and you like consulted a lawyer, let us know. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, we're not going to pay them, but let us know. Uh, I'll make a personal apology video or something. I'm sure that's worth legal fees, right? Okay, so our first letter today is from Meredith. She wrote, one of the biggest impacts fan fiction has had on me was introducing me to the LGBTQ community. I grew up in a well-off, predominantly white community in California where LGBT people weren't necessarily shunned, but they were just not talked about. I distinctly remember there were two gay couples in my neighborhood, but other than knowing of their existence, it was never talked about. When I first stumbled upon fan fiction in high school, I quickly learned about slash fic. I remember being uncomfortable with it at first because heteronormativity was so ingrained in my brain that I couldn't wrap my head around wanting to pair two male characters together. At first, I would avoid all slash fics and even gravitate toward the fics that turned one of the males in the pairing into a girl. I even started writing a fic where one of the main characters was actually a girl in disguise as a boy so that I could pair him with another male character. Looking back, I cringe at how heteronormative and homophobic this trope is. But after continuing to read fan fiction, I slowly became more accustomed to the idea of queer characters and slash pairings. By the time I entered college, the LGBT community had become normalized for me. I stopped considering the gender of two characters when shipping and started only looking at the dynamic between them. I know there is a lot of fetidization that goes on with MLM fic, but for me, I usually gravitate towards those pairings, not because it is MLM, but because in media we get so many more dynamic and interesting male characters that it is just easier to find two compatible male characters to pair together rather than forcing the token female to pick one of the males. Fanfic helped me discover my own queer identity and that sexuality and gender identity can be freely explored. I can hear the diversity of authors' voices through their work, and I have learned about so many queer identities. Just the exposure to these identities helped me identify my own and realize that I was not the only one with these kinds of feelings. I look forward to the day when mainstream media embraces the diversity of identities that fanfiction already has. I don't know if this has been influenced by fanfiction at all, but just in the last few years, we have gotten some real progress with representation in children's media, with several cartoons such as Legend of Korra, Steven Universe, and Voltron having some canon gay and bi characters, as well as disabled characters and POC. Legend of Korra introduced me to the only acceptable love triangle trope, where at first both girls fight over a boy and then decide he is not worth it and date each other instead. Oh my God, my favorite trope. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I used to, my, one of my favorite shows is Gilmore Girls. And I used to always want, have you ever watched that show? I always wanted Rory in Paris when they were fighting over this like awful guy in their, in their high school. <laughs> I was like, clearly you two belong together. 
<laughs> they do kiss in a later episode. Oh, but do that's they? All that yeah, oh during my. spring break. <laughs> oh my gosh. I feel like I just want to have you tell me all about Gilmore Girls. I could do it. I've seen every episode multiple times. <laughs> I I mean, I think that'd be a really fun night for me. <laughs> Ansley wrote, Just listened and love your pod about female journalists in India. The part where Bridget was discussing how women face such aggressive and gross comments when they become an online presence really resonated with me. I recently learned firsthand how scary internet misogyny can be when regular non-pornographic photos of myself from my private Instagram account were used to make a fake profile on a porn site asking for abusive and degrading comments. When I went to the police about the issue and spoke out about it, I was met with a lot of comments about, quote, being careful about what goes online, and that comes with the territory of the internet. Maybe it's my inner raging feminist flaring up, but that is such bullshit. Women should be able to post whatever they want online without fearing it will end up being used to threaten or degrade them. And it's impossible to police what you post, even with the most innocent photos can be grossly misused and sexualized. I'm so exhausted of constantly policing my actions and posts to protect myself from sexist, abusive BS that people are rarely held accountable for. Here, here. Um, first of all, I'm really sorry that happened to you. That's disgusting and not okay and just completely unacceptable. I'm really happy that you went to the police, but it's not surprising to me that the police did not take it seriously because I think a lot of times police departments are still sort of catching up with how you deal with these kinds of sensitive crimes that originate online. And yeah, you should be able to post whatever you want online. And the message of, oh, be careful what you post. If you just posted a headshot of yourself dressed normally and somebody can take that and make make a disgusting porn version of it, then it really isn't about what you post online. Like the onus isn't on you. Clearly that, that advice doesn't hold water. Yeah, it's just another victim blamey way. It makes me so mad. We shouldn't have to worry about like, what is this innocent picture? We shouldn't have to worry about what any picture, but like even just that I wouldn't think twice about posting and then who knows how it will be used. And again, the onus is only on the person who is doing this. It's not on you as the person who innocently posted a picture online, which is your right. Even if it was a, like a racy picture, yeah. the only person who has done something wrong is the person who has done something wrong. Yes. So thanks to both of them for writing in. If you would like to write to us, you can. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And you can find us on the social means. We're on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You and on Twitter at Momstuff Podcast. And thanks as always to our producer, Kathleen Quillian. 